the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with David Bauer. He's the author of The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. So we're looking forward to sharing that conversation with you. But first, the headlines. You probably know by now that President Trump has been impeached by the House over Capitol riots, becoming the first president in American history to face the rebuke twice. Well, the House of Representatives Wednesday made history by voting to impeach the president for a second time for incitement of insurrection. After a mob of his supporters and others besieged the Capitol on January 6th in a failed attempt to stop the certification of President-elect Joe Biden's Electoral College win. Well, the House voted 232 to 197 to impeach the president. Ten Republicans joined with Democrats. President Trump has just one week left in office, but the supporters of the impeachment push say that Trump is too dangerous to stay in office those seven days. The impeachment resolution condemns him for spreading lies that uh, he won the election in a landslide and whipping up a crowd of supporters in Washington before the riot that killed five people, including a Capitol police officer who was himself a Trump supporter. In other developments, James Comey says that Biden should consider pardoning Trump, but not for reasons you might expect. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene vows to file articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. And Andrew McCarthy, House impeachment vote represents wasted opportunities for consensus. That's what he says. And President Trump would have uh, standing to challenge his impeachment trial. Jonathan Turley confirms. Kevin McCarthy says impeachment would divide, but a censure would have been more appropriate. A censure resolution would be prudent. Well, Matt Gates is pushing back on Crenshaw over Dick Cheney or over Liz Cheney, rather. Uh, the impeachment vote defense, Representative uh, Matt Gates, uh, pushed back against fellow Republicans, uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw, on Wednesday, after the congressman defended Representative Liz Cheney, the highest ranking woman in the House, for her vote to impeach President Trump. With all due respect, Representative Chain, uh, Crenshaw, this is a minority view within the minority party, Gates tweeted to uh, Representative Crenshaw. He said earlier that Cheney had a, well, a heck of a lot more backbone than most and called her a principled leader. Well, Cheney and nine other House Republicans voted along with Democrats to impeach Mr. Trump for incitement of insurrection after a mob of his supporters stormed the Capitol. In other developments, Britt Hume said division in America is as bad as it's ever gotten in post-Civil War era. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is defending the Trump ban, but admits the company's power sets a dangerous precedent. Jack Dorsey spoke out Wednesday about his company's decision last week to ban President Trump from its platform. I do not celebrate or feel pride in our having to ban at real Trump, at real Donald Trump, or how we got here. Dorsey began a lengthy Twitter thread after a clear warning. Uh, we take this action. We made a decision with the best information we had based on threats to physical safety, both on and off Twitter. 
Was this correct? I believe this was the right decision for Twitter. He continued, we face an extraordinary and untenable circumstance forcing us to focus all of our actions on public safety. Online harm as a result of online speech is demonstrably real and what drives our policy and enforcement above all. That said, having a ban on an, uh, having to ban an account has a real and significant ramification. While there are clear and obvious exceptions, I feel a ban is a failure of ours ultimately to promote healthy conversation and at a time uh, for us to reflect on our operations and the environment around us. Dorsey acknowledged that taking such actions fragment the public conversation, divide us, and limit the potential for clarification, redemption, and learning. He also admitted that the power of his corporation is the global public conversation has set a dangerous precedent. And just uh, want to remind you that Twitter has not removed other, much more offensive and consistently so, actors on their site. In other developments, Snapchat will ban Trump from its platform. Parler CEO, who's uh, today before the Supreme Court, um, says that the social media app favored uh, by Trump supporters may not return. He also found shocking the restrictions by Amazon, Apple and Google. You just never think it will happen, he says. And a hacker has gone after uh, Parler users archiving terabytes of data. Well, House Democrats have requested a probe into suspicious behavior following allegations of Capitol reconnaissance tours. And Sean Hannity is urging McConnell to reject impeachment madness in the Senate. You should know better, he says. Well, a Democratic representative, uh, Cicilline, was caught removing his mask to sneeze on the House floor. I know. I'm sure there'll be some sort of um, hearing on that shortly. Well, Poshmark is set to join the IPO boom, and Connecticut is investigating Amazon's ebook business. SpaceX's Dragon spacecraft splashed down off the west coast of Florida, and Biden is eyeing a child tax credit expansion among stimulus measures. The IRS faces a Friday deadline to send out those $600 economic impact payments, so keep your eye on that. Well, the second time in 13 months the president has been um, impeached, Ari Fleischer from the Bush administration said this, two years from now or 20 years or 50 years, another president will act in a way that enrages his or her opposition and impeachment will be sought. Every day, every hour the president remains in office is a risk to the republic, they will say. Andrew McCarthy says the word incitement is uh, vague in the legal sense, under due process principles, a defendant may not be prosecuted on a vague statute because it does not put persons of ordinary intelligence on sufficient notice of what the law forbids. Colloquially, the vagueness of incitement is not readily apparent because the common understanding of the word is straightforward. To incite is to stir a person to action. The problem of vagueness arises in the context of criminal law because of the First Amendment. And Matt Walsh says this, Democrats have especially recently given us examples of what incitement sounds like when it is direct and explicit. Explicit incitement, rather, sounds like Congresswoman Ayanna Presley encouraging more unrest in the streets while the BLM riots were raging. It sounds like a Democrat state senator in Michigan a few weeks ago calling on soldiers to find Trump supporters and make them pay. It sounds like Maxine Waters telling her supporters to seek out Trump administration officials, form a crowd, and let them know that they are uh, welcome anywhere. As it happens, all of these people now favor impeaching Trump for doing what uh, what they themselves are guilty of. David Harsony explained why all this anger is uh, the biggest mystery of the modern age. Meanwhile, from CNN, 
Evidence uncovered so far, including weapons and tactics seen on surveillance video, suggests a level of planning that has led investigators to believe the attack on the U.S. Capitol was not just a protest that spiraled out of control, a federal law enforcement official says. Finally, Katie Pavlich says the evidence may prove problematic to the narrative and to the latest impeachment in the House. Well, the Senate may not bother with a Trump trial. He will, of course, be out of office at the time that the Trump, that the Senate rather, would likely take this up. The story notes that the earliest the Senate could receive the articles is the 19th, one day before Biden's inauguration. That's when they would receive the articles. Byron York notes the Democrats started trying to remove President Trump from office before he entered office. Now they are proposing to remove him from office after he leaves. Tom Cotton says, last week, I opposed the effort to reject certified electoral votes for the, re- for the same reason, fidelity to the Constitution. I now oppose impeachment proceedings against a former president. Hugh Hewitt says, as Judge um, Ludig argued, a Senate trial after President Trump leaves office will be unconstitutional. Will a number of Republican senators uh, to vote to acquit on that basis or to not participate at the proceedings at all? I won't be covering it much and we'll focus on President Biden. And from the Wall Street Journal, what's next? No one seems to know, which is also why impeachment should die in the House. Mr. McConnell said Wednesday that there will be no Senate trial before Mr. Biden is inaugurated. How could there be unless the Senate wants to deny Mr. Trump time to prepare a defense? Well, that means a trial would have to take place when Mr. Trump is a private citizen, fending off uh, creditors and perhaps prosecutors from Mar-a-Lago. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to continue taking a look at the news. We'll also talk with uh, David Bauer, author of The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Planned Parenthood is opposing a bill that protects babies that survive abortions. The governor of Kentucky, a Democrat, is also expected to veto the measure. Little exposes the evil more profoundly than the killing of a newborn baby, wanted by the mother or not. Well, the story also reminds us the measure is similar to a piece of federal legislation, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which Senate Democrats have blocked on the floor for the last two years. Well, Nike joins Walt Disney, Facebook, and others wanting to punish those who voted to decertify the Electoral College, ignoring those Democrats who did the same thing in the past. Nike, which is benefiting from slave labor, has cut off political contributions to unwoke members of Congress. And Johnson & Johnson COVID vaccine is showing a great promise, we're being told. The phase one and two clinical trial data show a single shot of the vaccine gives sustainable antibodies. That's according to Dr. Paul Stoffels, chief scientific officer at Johnson & Johnson, speaking on CNBC with Meg Tyrrell in an interview. He added it gives the company confidence the vaccine will be highly effective against the virus. By the way, China's vaccine, it turns out, only works about half the time. Federal authorities released a photo of a man believed to have murdered the Capitol police officer. He allegedly threw a fire extinguisher that struck Brian Sicknick. Speaker Nancy Pelosi broke her own rules, referring to herself as a wife and mother on the House floor. I know I can hardly believe it myself. The elimination of gender was an obvious pander to the goofy left, but she forgot her effort during the impeachment. Well, Snapchat has now uh, permanently banned Trump's account, leaving parents wondering how to get their teenagers permanently banned. 
Well, in cancel culture, rather, it's hard to keep track of how many people are telling us that we can no longer do business with them. The parlor CEO says his social media platform may never return. And New York City cancels contracts with the Trump Organization. A former campaign staffer was hired from his new or rather fired from his new job. Well, because he worked for Trump. And that's a real effort, a campaign that people associated with the Trump campaign or known to have been supporters of President Trump. They're trying to um, encourage their being blackballed. Well, in government and politics, mail-in ballots were just a teaser. House Democrats have introduced a bill to abolish the Electoral College. And with friends like these, who needs enemies? The Lincoln Project is teaming up with billionaires, left-wing activists to punish the GOP and elect more Democrats. I mean, it's not surprising they would want to elect people in their own party, but to punish the GOP in the process. The, the, uh, G, the Supreme Court, rather, says abortion pills can't be dispensed by mail. And the Census Bureau wrongly stopped um, work of an illegal immigrant count. The universal basic income advocate Andrew Yang announced a run for New York City's mayor. And cancer deaths in the U.S. are down by nearly one-third in the last 20 years. The U.S. finally bans cotton imports from Jiangjing, or Xinjiang, rather, citing Uyghur forced labor, and Iran is working on uranium metal in a new breach of the nuclear deal. Space Command headquarters, well, they're going to be located in Huntsville, Alabama. Well, around the nation, Airbnb is canceling bookings in Washington, D.C. for the next uh, week during the, pre- the president-elect's inauguration. And former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder is facing two criminal charges in the Flint water case. Faith in humanity? Well, Missouri has been declared the first abortion-free state. Well, Captain Obvious uh, Headline Awards, a new report finding trust in social institutions has diminished further in 2020. California hospital was fined $43,000. Let's see, it's not thousands G. What's a K? Anyway, we'll figure it out. After a COVID outbreak linked to, wait for it, an inflatable Christmas costume. Well, a Quebec couple gets creative trying to evade curfew by putting the husband on a leash. And a rather creative artist was um, has taken paintings of historical figures and uses artificial intelligence to create super realistic photographs. Well, on this day in history, 1970, Diana Ross and the Supremes performed their last concert together at the Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas. 1784, the United States ratifies the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War. Britain would follow suit in April. 1967, the 60s Summer of Love. Now, that's not the one in Seattle just months ago. Unofficially begins with a human be in. Three words, human be in. Uh, involving tens of thousands of young people at Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. 1975, the House Internal Security Committee, formerly the House of uh, Un-American Activities Committee, is disbanded. And finally, 1994, President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin signed an accord to stop aiming missiles at any nation. The leaders join Ukrainian President um, Kravchuk in signing an accord to dismantle the nuclear arsenal of Ukraine. Well, on the menu today, the House impeached uh, President Trump again, but the Senate isn't likely to resolve it before Joe Biden takes office. There's a legal debate about whether Congress can vote after January 20th to bar President Trump, who will be civilian Trump, from returning to the presidency and contemplating what we should prioritize if unity is impossible. 
Well, the House impeached the president a second time. And with 10 House Republicans joining all House Democrats, the number of votes to impeach for inciting an insurrection, 232 was more than the number of votes for the previous articles of impeachment relating to the president's phone call with the president of Ukraine, 229 to 230. So there were some gains. In the Senate, where Mitch McConnell remains majority leader until the 20th of January, and perhaps a little longer, depending upon when uh, Raphael Warnick and John Ossoff are sworn in, action is unlikely until after President Trump leaves office. McConnell summarized the situation in a four-paragraph letter to colleagues. The House of Representatives have voted, he wrote, to impeach the president. The Senate process will now begin at our first regular meeting following receipt of the articles from the House, or rather, in this case, article singular. Given the rules, procedures, and Senate precedents about govern, uh, that govern presidential impeachment trials, there is simply no chance that a fair or serious trial, and underline the word trial, there's supposed to be a trial in which the accused has an opportunity to defend himself, could conclude before President-elect Biden is sworn in next week. The Senate has held three presidential impeachment trials. They have lasted 83 days, 37 days, and 21 days, respectively. Even if the Senate process were to begin this week and moved promptly, no final verdict would be reached until after President Trump had left office. This is not a decision I am making. It is a fact. The president-elect himself stated last week that his inauguration on January 20th is the quickest path for any change in the occupancy of the White House. Well, in light of this reality, I believe I will best serve our nation if Congress and the, ex- the executive branch spend the next seven days uh, completely focused on facilitating a safe inauguration and an orderly transfer of power to the incoming Biden administration. I am grateful to the offices uh, and institutions within the, uh, the Capitol that are working around the clock alongside federal and local law enforcement to prepare for a safe and successful inauguration. Well, the arguments put forward for idleness are not convincing. Democrats uh, worry a trial might interfere with President-elect Biden's agenda, but the trial doesn't have to uh, be long. All the facts are in evidence, they say. They are uh, plain uh, to anyone who can read or watch television. Senators could reach a verdict prior to the inauguration. Indeed, it is best that they do so, even if the trial concludes only hours before Biden takes the oath of office. Uh, that way, the Senate avoids the question of whether it's a constitutional uh, it is constitutional to convict a president who has left office. Now, keep in mind, the president or the accused uh, does have an opportunity or at least should have an opportunity to defend himself. So I'm not sure if the Democrats see that as part of the process. I should say Democrats and the 10 senators, the president's supporters and a few of his opponents say that trial conviction and removal would further divide the country. They're afraid of more violence. The risk of action, in their view, outweighs the cost of inaction, better for the country, to look the other way, which would be forward. Perhaps the um, the tiger will slink off into the jungle. We'll see what actually happens, but Mitch McConnell has made it quite clear in order to fulfill the process, which the Senate has done three times previously, it's going to require time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll share a classic interview with David Bauer, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, as promised, we're going to talk about a new volume, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. My guest is uh, Dr. David Bauer. 
And in the book, uh, he uh, points out that from the beginning to the end, the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God. In this comprehensive introduction to Matthew, he presents a holistic, inductive approach with a literary, theological, and canonical uh, focus on the on the text. So he joins us to talk about this uh, volume. I should mention that Dr. Um, Bauer earned his Ph.D. from Union Theological Seminary, is the Ralph Waldo Beeson Professor of Inductive Biblical Studies and Dean of the School of Biblical Interpretation at Asbury Theological Seminary. His numerous books include Inductive Bible Study, A Comprehensive Guide to the Practice of Hermeneutics and Essential Bible Study Tools for Ministry. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bauer, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you write uh, early on in the uh, in the preface that this volume represents the fruit of nearly 40 years of research and teaching on the Gospel of Matthew. Tell us a little bit about uh, your work as a uh, as a professor and a student of of this book in particular. Well, interestingly enough, I have never had or taken a course on the Gospel of Matthew. Um, I became interested in Matthew uh, during my uh, seminary uh, years uh, because of its uh, centrality to the biblical canon. Uh, it stands really at the center of the canon, and more than any other gospel, um, connects the teaching and life of Jesus and really the New Testament with the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, I, when I was looking, to, uh, looking forward to doing uh, doctoral studies, uh, I was wanting to focus upon the Gospel of Matthew. And I was fortunate enough to study under one of the great authorities in the world on the Gospel of Matthew, Jack Dean Kingsbury. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. And I have been teaching here at Asbury Theological Seminary now for 36 years. And so we have the benefit of of that study, that life of... of um of study and uh, your focus on the Gospel of Matthew. One of the things you point out early on is that there are other volumes on the the Gospel of Matthew, but this differs in some significant ways. Can you describe for us the approach that you've taken uh, in your book, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew? Yes, I think it, I think it, it, it differs from most other introductions to Matthew in three ways, especially. Um, one has to do with the... Uh, with uh, the comprehensiveness of the approach, um, I recognize that uh, that really there are three things involved in the very character of Matthew's gospel, uh, that uh, it has a history, that is to say, it arose at a certain time, of course, in the past, was, it, was, was uh, addressed to uh, certain Christians in the past, obviously in the first century, um, and uh, <clears throat> And, of course, uh, references uh, the history of Jesus. So you have that historical aspect. But the Gospel of Matthew is essential, is essentially literary. Uh, that is to say, it is a book. Uh, and uh, to grasp this message, one must take its literary character seriously. Uh, the way in which the evangelist has, has, has arranged his material, uh, the uh, selectivity of the evangelist, what he has chosen to leave out, what he has chosen to include, um, all these kinds of uh, features. And then, of course, it is theological, because the primary focus of this book is really upon upon God and Christ. Uh, that's The purpose of it is really to communicate um, a theological message. And so the book is careful to attend to each of these three aspects and to relate them to one another, 
with a common goal of, 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 of grasping as best we can the message that the writer of Matthew wished, wished to convey to his original readers, which has, of course, continuing significance uh, for us. The second way in which it's different is that, and this really re, uh, relates in a way to what I've just said, and that is it, uh, it, it uh, utilizes the in, uh, an inductive approach, which really uh, is intentional in asking, okay, uh, given the nature of the Gospel of Matthew, what is the most appropriate, the most effective way to study it, to come to understand it? Uh, this is based on the principle of suitability, and that is the, the, the most effective way to, to do anything is to consider the nature of the task. The most effective way, then, to study the, math, the Gospel of Matthew is to consider the nature of Matthew's Gospel. And as I say, it's historical, it's literary, and it's theological. But the third thing has to do, really, with the, with, the, with the scope of the audience that I have in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, its target is really, uh, one might say, upper-class undergraduate students or seminary students or informed pastors. Uh, but uh, my uh, hope is, and I think that it, it uh, really can function this way, is that we'll speak into scholarship. I've tried to, to, um, to chart some new paths in terms of Matthean scholarship. But also, uh, I think that, uh, that informed lay people uh, interested lay people can find real help in it too, because I've been I was tr- I try to be careful in terms of how I wrote it. Uh, my conviction is that that is possible to communicate uh, uh, serious truth uh, to people who are uninitiated if you are careful in your communication, if you are clear. And if you're and if you're intentional in terms of not assuming um, uh, a great deal of knowledge on the part mm-hmm. of the reader, making sure that the reader is constantly informed in terms of the assumptions and the and is uh, and uh, the meaning of terms that that uh, is being employed. One of the things that you uh, say in the book is that along with Paul's epistle to the Romans, the Gospel of Matthew is the most significant Christian writing in existence. It stands at the center, as you mentioned a moment ago, of the New Testament canon functioning as foundation uh, documents that present the story and teaching of Jesus and thus form the the um, presupposition for the apostolic ministry. Now, explain what you mean by that, because most of our listeners who have um, had uh, done a plain reading of the Gospel of Matthew may not uh, appreciate its significance in the canon of Scripture. Can you help us better understand um, why that's true? Well, uh, of course, in general, uh, the all four of our Gospels uh, uh, our foundation documents for the rest of the New Testament. Um, they present uh, they, they present the the life and the teachings of Jesus, which then, of course, is presupposed by the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament builds builds upon that. Uh, that's not to say that you know that the rest of the New Testament uh, uh, writers were aware of our gospels. In fact, in terms of historical sequence, all the all of the epistles of Paul were written before any of our Gospels were produced, but they were aware and they, uh, of, of the of the of basically the life and the teaching of Jesus, which now finds expression in our Gospels. So, 
the rest of the New Testament is based, of course, upon the upon the the upon the uh, historical manifestation of Jesus Christ, his his life teachings. So that's that's how it functions foundationally for the rest of the New Testament. But as I mentioned a few moments ago, it is really it is really central to the canon of the of Scripture. Of course, canon of Scripture has two testaments: the Old Testament mm-hmm. and the New Testament. And it's not by accident that the Gospel of Matthew, uh, since Irenaeus at least, and really for the most part even before him, as far as we can tell, the the Gospel of Matthew has almost always been uh, the first of the the first book of the New Testament. And uh, there are a number of reasons for that, but one reason is because of its of of, of its close association with the Old Testament. No other gospel uh, does uh, as much to relate uh, 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 the life and the teaching of Jesus to the Old Testament. Two particulars will illustrate this. One is that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, uh, which, of course, is a gene- genealogy uh, that uh, goes back to Abraham uh, through David to Jesus, who is called Christ. And then, of course, in Matthew's Gospel, you have the so-called fulfillment quotations. There are anywhere from 10 to 12 of them, depending how you count them. This was uh, done uh, in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, uh, those kinds of things. You have those, those statements throughout Matthew's Gospel which provide a uh, scriptural framework, uh, let's say an Old Testament scriptural framework, for uh, Jesus in terms of the category of fulfillment. Uh, and incidentally, uh, readers often will note those, because they're quite obvious, those fulfillment quotations, as they're called, but actually they represent only, uh, they, they rep- represent only one-fifth of the scriptural quotations and allusions that we have throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. We're talking about the book, The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew. Dr. David Bauer is our guest. I do need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. By the way, the book is currently available and published by InterVarsity Press. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're talking about the Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. My guest is Dr. David Bauer. He provides a comprehensive introduction to this Gospel that's been so foundational to the uh, Christian Church. He argues that the nature of Matthew itself should provide us with the framework for its study, and he presents a holistic, inductive approach with a literary, theological, and uh, canonical um, uh, emphasis. Now, the volume falls into three main sections. You've made reference to them in our our previous conversation, the orientation, interpretation, and reflection. Let's talk about how these three sections help us in our study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Let's begin with the first um, section of the book, which is its orientation. Uh, Yes, the orientation, of course, uh, is meant to to, uh, help uh, readers of Matthew's Gospel put it into, into context, its context, and read it in terms of its context. So there are four, there are four uh, discussions under orientation. The first is the form and genre of the gospel. Um, uh, every, uh, every act of communication, including any literary communication, uh, has genre. That is a, a, a certain form in which it is cast. And it's, it's important, it's essential really, to read anything in terms of its genre, keeping its genre in mind. We would not, um, 
we, we would not read, for example, uh, uh, a, a book, a science fiction book, in the same way that we would read a math textbook. They are two different genres. Uh, so it was very important to, I think, to begin by identifying exactly what is a gospel, what is the nature of a gospel, and uh, and how does an understanding of, of the genre uh, of the gospel help us to know uh, how to read it, the kinds of reading strategies that are appropriate, and and those kinds of reading strategies that, that would lead us astray in terms of grasping really the message uh, that the inspired writer has to uh, give to us. Uh, we talk also about the method that we adopt here, which, as we've already uh, mentioned, is mm-hmm. an inductive approach that centers upon the, the theological meaning, as to say, what God has to communicate to us about who he is and what his will is, the theological meaning of the text as we have it. So the book does not really focus upon a reconstruction of earlier sources or uh, earlier stages of the gospel tradition, uh, nor does it attempt really to reconstruct uh, the life of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, but rather we focus upon the text as we have it. What message does the inspired author of Matthew's Gospel wish to communicate to his Christian readers uh, through what he has written here and the way that he has written it? Talked also speak also here about the circumstances of composition. You know, these are, are questions such as the, the date and place of writing of the gospel, uh, the authorship of the gospel. Uh, the, all, all of our gospels are actually, uh, are actually anonymous. Uh, none of them has, uh, you know, tells us the, the name of the author, no, and none of them does the author give us uh, his own identity. Uh, the titles were added later. Uh, perhaps as early as the beginning of the second century, but still uh, later than the Gospels were written. So we talk about matters of authorship there. And then I talk about the literary structure of the book, uh, the way in which the book is arranged, the, the, the major divisions within the book, and, and the dynamic uh, way in which the writer relates motifs and themes to one another in order to communicate meaning. So that's basically the background that the orientation section gives. From there, you focus on interpretation. And of course, that's ultimately what every reader of the Gospel of Matthew um, hopes to get right. Uh, Talk about how your book helps us to uh, properly understand and interpret what the Gospel of Matthew teaches. Uh, I understand the Gospel of Matthew in terms of its structure as falling into three main units. Uh, 1, 1 through 4, 16, being the preparation for Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. 4, 17 through 16, 20, being the uh, proclamation of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God to Israel. And 16, 21 through 28, 20, being the passion and resurrection of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. Uh, the Matthew actually indicates that progression, the threefold movement, through two general headings that he gives at the beginning of the second major division, 417 through 1620, we read in 417, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then at the beginning of the third major division, at 1621, says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, 
and on the third day be raised. You note the parallel there. From that time, Jesus began. So that Matthew gives us a, a really uh, clues in terms of the development of his book. And so the interpretation portion of, of this of my book uh, is really a passage-by-passage passage, uh, ex- exposition mm-hmm. of the gospel, uh, focusing upon, and, and we say something about every, every segment within the book, but uh, we focus upon, I focus upon um, those passages that are most critical to an understanding of the book and the message uh, of the book. And so uh, there are three chapters here, uh, the interpretation of Matthew 1, 1 through 4, 16, and then uh, 4, 17 through 16, 20, and 16, 21 through 28, 20. In the third section, it follows naturally. Um, this is the, the section on reflection, and it develops some of the major theological issues that emerge in the previous section on interpretation. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. This, this is a culmination of the book. And again, uh, it reflects the conviction that, that, the, that the purpose of this book is really theological. That is to say uh, that Matthew is, is, is engaged in preaching, uh, to his audience. Uh, matter of fact, it's no accident that the that you know that 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 these books are called gospels and that their authors are referred to as evangelists. That's exactly what they are. So none of these gospels, of course, exists uh, fundamentally just to give us uh, historical information mm-hmm. about Jesus, uh, but really to to teach and to engage in pastoral care uh, toward uh, their audience. And uh, so, uh, uh, out of uh, so, all interpretation uh, should really lead to theology. That is to say, an understanding of God, of Christ, and of God's will and purpose for us. And that's what this third section really makes explicit. And so, we deal with, of course, uh, uh, what's called Christology. That is to say, uh, uh, how Jesus is presented and the meaning of Jesus according to Matthew's Gospel in two chapters, and then also uh, 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 what Matthew says is teaching about God, is teaching about uh, salvation history, that is to say, redemptive history, which is a major concern of Matthew's gospel, and eschatology, um, uh, both how uh, the Christ event brings to fulfillment uh, the Old Testament, and then also future eschatology, that is to say, the consummation, and then it ends finally with the discipleship. Well, I would encourage our listeners, certainly for pastors and scholars, academics, this is a volume that will be um, very useful. But I, I appreciate uh, the challenge of going deeper. And a volume like The Gospel of the Son of God, an introduction to Matthew, not only can help us better understand uh, the structure and meaning of Matthew, but may also help us as we approach other Gospels as well in trying to not only understand, but apply what's what's being taught there. Dr. Bauer, thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to join us here today. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Again, the book is titled The Gospel of the Son of God, An Introduction to Matthew. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. You might just want to spend a year going deeper in studying the gospel and an introduction to help us better understand how to approach it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. A bit later in the program, we're going to talk to a new advertiser, Senior Pastor Gil Hansen. He's with Mount View Baptist Temple. 
We'll talk with uh, him about that a little later this hour. This is as bad as it ever uh, it's ever gotten. Perhaps during the Civil War would be the only exception. That's a quote from Brett Hume. He says, so the challenge for the leaders at a time like this is to attempt to tamp us down, how we find places to agree, because this is poisonous to our country. Well, it certainly is a season in which we don't seem to have the will to survive by means of unity, or at least civility. Well, Brett Hume credited President Trump for making a video statement Wednesday evening in which the president said he unequivocally condemned last week's riot at the Capitol. However, the analyst wondered whether the message had come too late. He added that while Trump bears responsibility for spreading false claims about election irregularities, President-elect Joe Biden didn't help the situation by suggesting last week that police treated the rioters lightly because the crowd was mostly white. There are a lot of people in this country who believe that we are a nation of systematic racism, Hume pointed out, but there are a great many who believe we are not. It's a point of deep division in the country. So why he, Biden, would choose on that occasion to feed that is a good question. He has a job now of trying to unify things. One way you could do that is if you uh, uh, could call off the impeachment dogs, but it may not. Uh, it may be too late for that. Well, it certainly is too late for that. The president has been impeached. The trial would be the next step in that. Well, Brett Hume added that there appears to be no real precedent for Trump's second impeachment since it occurred after voters opted to remove the president from office themselves. So it was uh, virtually a moot point, but one House Democrats and 10 Republicans we're bent on making. Well, the National Mall will close uh, to the public on Inauguration Day next week as local and federal officials. They work to secure Washington, D.C. for President-elect Joe Biden's swearing in after rioters were able to breach the U.S. Capitol. It was a rather um, challenging thing before that happened to put together an inauguration under quarantine, but now it's even further curtailed. The National Mall will be accessible only to media and security personnel, according to the Washington Post. That means no one will be able to get into the mall. Uh, I would think about it as uh, if you were going to watch, uh, you're not going to be able to see anything. You would maybe be able to see the top of the Capitol, but that's about it. During the past inaugurations, the mall has served as a gathering site for the public to view the swearing in in person and on large jumbotrons. Well, officials are working to tighten security in the district with plans to establish a downtown security zone and to deploy more than 20,000 National Guard members to protect the event on January 20th. Many of them are housed now in the Capitol uh, waiting to, um, to be called upon to do, I suppose, more. Well, after House Democrats led the charge in voting on Wednesday to impeach him uh, for an unprecedented second time, this time over the Incitement of insurrection, the White House released a video message from the president in which he unequivocally denounced political violence and called for peace and unity. Now, some say this may be too little too late, but he has fewer outlets to communicate with the public than he did just days ago. He said mob violence goes against everything I believe in and everything our movement stands for. No true supporter of mine could ever endorse political violence. No true supporter of mine could ever disrespect law enforcement or our great American flag. Now, I am taking uh, everyone who has ever believed in our agenda um, uh, to, uh, to be thinking of ways to ease tensions, calm tempers, and help promote peace in our country. Nothing uh, reports of, uh, noting reports rather, of violence 
uh, rising across the country leading up to uh, or during the inauguration. The president urged Americans to follow our laws, to obey the instructions of law enforcement. And while avoiding mentioning the impeachment, Trump did hit on the unprecedented recent crackdown on free speech by big tech. Efforts to censor, cancel and blacklist our fellow citizens are wrong and they are dangerous, he asserted. Uh, What is needed now is for us to listen to one another, not to silence one another. Well, Trump is correct on that point, only through rejecting violence and fostering a willingness to communicate with one another in a civil tone and have good faith disagreements can any hope for unity be achieved. Now, those calling for the silencing of people with whom they disagree politically uh, will only work to stoke the fires of division and hatred. Genuine unity requires offering genuine respect and acceptance of dignity of those on the other side of whatever the question might be. Dubious demonization of political opponents only begets anger and intolerance, and we certainly have plenty of that at this point. It may not start uh, start with big tech. It may need to start with you and I and how we interact with people in our own circles, but how we relate to one another, and who knows, peace might break out, unity, tolerance, and so on. It's worth a try. Meanwhile, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, says that um, there's a commission being discussed to rein in, that's the phrase she chose, to rein in media. Well, it's been slammed as wholly un-American. If anyone could use a truth commission, it's Congress, David Harsinyi points out. Well, media watchdogs are shocked and appalled that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that Congress is looking into media literacy initiatives, including a commission to help rein in misinformation in the wake of last week's deadly breach in the U.S. Capitol. And one critic slammed her suggestion as wholly un-American. Well, during a lengthy live stream on Instagram on Tuesday night, The leader of the squad, so-called, discussed the aftermath of the Capitol riot, how she feared for her life during the chaos and what needs to be done going forward. At one point, she read a question from a viewer who asked if there is discussion in Congress on truth and reconciliation or media literacy initiatives to help with healing. It's a rather interesting uh, concept. Uh, If you're focusing on a singular event that certainly was uh, unacceptable But if you stand back and broaden that focus to the last several months, um, perhaps the question should be phrased a bit differently. Uh, AOC said this, I can only say there is absolutely a commission being discussed, but it seems to be more investigatory in style rather than truth and reconciliation. So I think that's an interesting concept for us to explore. And I do think that several members of Congress in some of my discussions have brought up media literacy because that is a part of what happened here. And we're going to have to figure out how to rein in our media environment. This is a member, a sitting member of Congress talking about reining in the media with disregard for what the Constitution says about the freedom of the press. So this is a a rather disturbing and interesting statement. I think people tend to uh, think if we could just quiet the opposition, things would be just fine. But we would be something very different than the Constitutional Republic uh, than we actually are if we went that route. Anyway, she went on to say um, uh, they brought up media literacy because that is a part of what's happening here. And we're going to have to figure out how to rein in our media environment so that you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. So uh, who determines what's uh, disinformation and misinformation? Representative Ocasio-Cortez. Steve Ducey said that he was a little troubled by the suggestion and enlisted the Hill media columnist Joe Concha 
to help figure out who would decide what media gets reined in under the progressive lawmakers plan. Now, let me give you an example. If you are pro-life, it may be that uh, the fact that you believe in the sanctity of human life and you're opposed to abortion would mean that that's misinformation and disinformation because it is being interpreted as being anti-woman, um, given the position that's being held largely on the left. Well, let's unpack this proposal. She wants to basically establish a ministry of truth. We've all read 1984. Maybe she hasn't. And to determine what is truth and what is not would be their charge. So who sits on the committee exactly? Eric Swalwell, Adam Schiff, because uh, they seem to have some challenges when it comes to uh, that exercise. We've also had um, fact checkers who themselves have had some difficulty checking facts. So this is very troubling. And while you may dismiss, well, it's only Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is a sitting member of Congress. She is a woman of influence. And she apparently, along with other members of Congress, are considering how to establish some way of determining and reining in the media and determining what's, uh, what's truth and how to prevent untruth from resonating. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we're going to introduce a new advertiser, Senior Pastor Gil Hansen with Mount View Baptist Church. The radio campaign began here on KPDQ some weeks ago. We want to let you know who they are and what you need to uh, what you need to know. Well, Twitter is opposed to governments restricting speech. Maybe it's because they don't want competition. In a development that's added more fuel to the fires against big tech, Jack Dorsey's company made an astonishingly bad PR move to tweet about the situation in Uganda. And what comes across as delusional, Twitter tried to position itself as a champion of open debate, posting to the astonishment of pretty much everyone, Ahead of the Ugandan election, we're hearing reports that Internet service providers are being ordered to block social media and message apps. We strongly condemn Internet shutdowns. They are hugely harmful, violate basic human rights and the principles of the open Internet, end quote. Direct quote from Jack Dorsey. Well, Tony Perkins points out, yes, Twitter, the king of conservative censorship, Wielder of the all-powerful on-off switch had the nerve to actually write that days after permanently stripping the president of the free world's account, a move that even Europe's progressives couldn't believe. Dorsey's company has the audacity to err on the side of open Internet in a country 8,000 miles away. The gall, if you will, was all New York Post op-ed editor um, Armani had to say. Pre-election freedom of information for Ugandans but not for readers of America's oldest daily newspaper, the New York Post. Truly, our friend Ali Stuckey shook her head. They think you're stupid. Unfortunately for Jack Dorsey and the rest of big tech oligarchs, we're not. A lot of people are going to the super unhappy with the West Coast high tech as the de facto arbiter of free speech, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, argued. West Coast high tech has to make the distinction between banning hate speech and banning speech it hates. So far, Dorsey uh, possesses um, the motivation to do so, but that's changing, critics warn, and fast. Well, in Europe, where countries have never cared much for free speech and find themselves farther down the path to radicalism, leaders like Germany's Angela Merkel describe the banning of Trump problematic. Others like Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny uh, 
were quite blunt that what the Silicon Valley had done is an unacceptable act. Of course, Twitter is a private company, but we have seen many examples in Russia and China of such private companies becoming the state's best friend and the enablers when it comes to censorship, not to mention uh, tax on uh, with potent truth. I get death threats here every day for many years, and Twitter doesn't ban anyone. Well, again, Tony Perkins goes on to say, how far has America come in one week? If even the nations uh, uh, where free speech isn't cherished are surprised, have we actually managed to leapfrog Europe and Asia in this social media freefall? Even the ACLU felt compelled to put a stake in the ground. We understand the desire to permanently suspend Trump now, but it should concern everyone when companies like Facebook and Twitter wield the unchecked power to remove people from the platforms. They have become indispensable. Rather, that have become indispensable for the speech of billions, especially when political realities make those decisions easier. The organization's statement read, in other words, what goes around comes around. Jason Rance warned this, Democrats celebrating censorship and social media companies flaunting their decisions with specious justifications should be wary. The very same desire to silence a political uh, opponent will come for them. And tech giants trying to please the party in charge just backed a move that puts their political future in jeopardy. Uh, the Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerbergs uh, may think that they hold all the power, but a big tech reckoning is coming. And when it does, no amount of leftist election pandering will save them. We'll see what happens next. But it's interesting that all across the political spectrum, they're being called on the decisions they have made. Well, social media giants Facebook and Twitter have collectively seen $51.2 billion dollars and combined market value wiped out over the last two trading sessions since they banned President Trump from their platform following the U.S. Capitol breach. Large tech firms and a number of Democratic political figures have claimed Trump incited violence at the U.S. Capitol. The incitement disrupted debates in both the House and the Senate. Well, Trump took to Twitter following the outbreak of violence to call on protesters to go home in peace. He denounced the violence as a heinous attack that defiled the seat of American democracy, on January 7th, it's not clear who instigated the breach of the building. Well, last week, uh, Twitter first placed restrictions on a video the president posted before temporarily suspending his account, an action followed closely by Facebook. Twitter, two days later, permanently suspended the president's account over two Twitter posts it cited as having violated its policies. A large number of pro-Trump accounts were also deleted by Twitter and Facebook. And as users attempted to flee to Parler, an alternative, and other social media websites, Amazon Web Services suspended its service to Parler on Monday morning, triggering a lawsuit from the company hours later. Most recently, Google's YouTube removed new content from Trump's account and suspended his channel for at least a week, saying that the channel violated its policies for inciting violence. After careful review and in light of concerns about the ongoing potential for violence, we removed two new contents uploaded by Donald J. Trump. Well, Google didn't have any further comment when asked about what aspects of the content on Trump's channel had violated its policies. The president has argued that companies like Google, Twitter and Facebook will uh, will fail due to censorship. Big Tech is doing a terrible thing to our country, Trump said. And I believe he went on to say it's going to be a catastrophe and a catastrophic mistake for them. Well, only time will ultimately tell.
Well, Americans filed 965,000 new unemployment claims this week, the most single, uh, the most rather, since late August, as the coronavirus continues to surge nationwide and put pressure on the labor market. The number soared above Wall Street estimates of 800,000 and extended the previous week's total of 784,000. Last week saw the most new unemployment claims since the week of August 22nd, when just over a million claims were filed. And a report issued on Thursday by the Labor Department also show that 5.3 million Americans are continuing to receive state jobless benefits, up from 5.1 million one week earlier. Well, the U.S. reported a single-day high in the coronavirus death category this week, as Johns Hopkins University tallying 4,372 fatalities on Tuesday. The number brings the country's cumulative death toll to 380,820. The deaths come as the country sees a shift in vaccination policy to distribute more uh, shots to wider groups of people in an effort to speed the process On Tuesday, the Trump administration recommended states widen distribution plans to include people ages 65 and older, as well as those at higher risk of infection. It said states should avoid reversing uh, second doses or rather reserving second doses for people who have already received their first jab, as there should be ample supply when needed. Health and Human Service Secretary Alex Azar said the change in policy was made once the government felt confident the vaccine manufacturing and the production would be available. Hours later, speaking at the Futures Forum on Preparedness, Dr. Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease expert, said the country was too rigid in the initial rollout of the vaccine, so changes have been made. Meanwhile, here in the state of Oregon, Senate Bill 254 is uh, being proposed as an emergency mandatory vaccine bill. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments, but we need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Senior Pastor Gil Hansen. He's the Senior Pastor of Mount View Baptist Temple. They've joined the KPDQ Advertising Squad, if you will. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, from time to time, we have new advertisers join the family here at KPDQ, and it's always a delight to facilitate an introduction. So today we're going to do just that with Senior Pastor Gil Hansen. He is the Senior Pastor at Mountain View Baptist Church, and you may have heard their ads already on the station inviting you to join them either in person or online, but we wanted to make sure you had a more personal invitation as well. So I've invited uh, Pastor Hansen to join us here today. Welcome, Pastor, not only to the program today, but to the KPDQ family. Thank you so much, Georgine. It really is an honor to be invited to your program. Really delighted to be here. Thank you. Well, tell us where Mountain View Baptist Church is located. Mountain View Baptist Temple is located in Tualatin, Oregon, uh, right at the juncture there by 5 and 205. Uh, we're currently renting a Seventh-day Adventist building, uh, but uh, our only relationship is simply as a, as a renter, and it's been a, a amenable relationship for some time now. I want to make sure I get the name right, because it's Mount View Baptist Temple, and I think I've called it Mountain View a couple of times, so I want to make sure our listeners <laughs> right. understand the correct no, no. name. You know, this is such right. a, an unusual season for the body of Christ. Churches are not allowed to meet in the casual way that we have been accustomed to. Um, many churches, if not most, are 
also providing an online presence. Tell us a little bit about what Mount View Baptist Temple is doing during this challenging time to minister in your own congregation while still inviting others to join you. Sure, sure. Well, we are we are open for in-person services, and as you mentioned, online as well. Now, the Lord has provided um, a really fantastic facility and uh, the apparatus to set things up in a way to give folks uh, their own level of comfort. Uh, we mm-hmm. have folks that come in, uh, and we're able to make use of the auditorium uh, to be able to give folks a comfortable space to be able to meet. But we also have a couple of the rooms uh, that are available in which we have linked up a flat screen TV or a projector so that uh, if folks would like to have a little bit more space or if folks are coming and we need to make more room, uh, we simply uh, invite them to other parts of the building. And, of course, it's linked through YouTube so that they can follow along uh, with the services uh, and have their own uh, own place to be able to join with us. So it really is a, a neat opportunity to meet and, and take care of the spiritual needs of as many people as possible. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is such a unique time, not just because of the pandemic and the challenges that that poses, but also a time in which we as a nation are really struggling. People are struggling financially, certainly spiritually. There's a lot of division uh, among communities and so on. Fear and uncertainty. Uh, How can uh, folks um, regain their hope and their peace? And how does Mount View Baptist Temple help in that regard? That's an excellent question. As you, as you and I are both aware, hope begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Um, his, his mission was centered on bringing hope into a hopeless world, and the God of hope uh, made that all possible through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And as a fundamental church, our objective is to introduce this message of hope through Jesus Christ to anyone who is willing to listen, and then to build upon that for those that have received Christ as their Savior, uh, to be able to have a place to come, to recalibrate themselves, to uh, once again reestablish their spiritual moorings in the Word of God, and to spend time in genuine worship and interaction with other believers, because Jesus Christ knew what he was doing when he left the church behind. He knew the need was going to be there for saints mm-hmm. to gather together, even even in the midst of a so-called pandemic, be able to have places where we can still link up and connect. And so Mount View, yeah. I think, provides that as an opportunity. I know you describe yourselves as independent Baptist church with an emphasis on old-fashioned worship. So we're not going to see acrobats and smoke machines. <laughs> describe the style of, of worship and the, uh, the emphasis on sound biblical exposition, which to me, that's got to be the centerpiece of any congregation. That's right. That is, that is totally right, Georgine. Um, we do uh, sing from the, the hymns. That doesn't mean that we have uh, funeral dirges and things like that. We have a lively music program, uh, but we do enjoy the doctrine that comes mm-hmm. from these hymns uh, to be able to reinforce the things that uh, we say we believe. And then, of course, the preaching, I, I do try to be expository in virtually all the messages that I bring, even when we get into a, a topical series, I try to anchor myself ex- expositorily to specific texts uh, to be able to give folks a very sound basis for um, their faith. And so that is kind of our approach. And preaching really is the uh, the 
I love that, to center our gathering together around God's Word. There's nothing sweeter and more um, edifying than that. And you know, I love your emphasis on the hymns because there's so, so much rich doctrine in them. And it saddens me to consider that in many places the hymns are falling by the wayside. It's one of the things that has connected generations of believers. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you haven't jettisoned the hymns as so, so many have in your worship. Mount View Baptist Church is a serious congregation that is serious about following Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to invite our listeners here today to join you in this effort to to minister to one another, to reach out into our community, and to explore God's Word. Amen. I appreciate the opportunity. We would like to extend uh, a very warm welcome to anyone that um, is looking for a place to worship with other believers of like faith, individuals that are serious about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and getting into the Word of God, uh, learning from the Scriptures, allowing the Holy Spirit to uh, strengthen them through the Bible, uh, that is what our mission is. And you'll find a warm and welcoming atmosphere. Uh, We do not try to um, pressure people in any way. Uh, We just want folks to come who are sincere and serious about uh, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, not looking for any necessary flash or panache, just basic Bible uh, doctrine and, uh, and, and genuine worship. And uh, I do think, I do really do believe that for a lot of people, they'll find the view is better here. <laughs> I love that. Now, for listeners who are interested in joining you either in person or online, what's the best way for them to do one or the other? Okay. Um, you can find out pretty much everything you need to know uh, about Mount View uh, at our website. It is the initials of our church. That would be mvbtministries.org. And if you were to uh, bring that up on your browser, it would come to our website. You'll have our contact information, where we're located. Uh, It will also have our church office number uh, so that you can reach out to us uh, anytime, anyway. And uh, we'd we'd love to hear from folks that are interested and might have some questions. Absolutely. Again, that address is m vbtministries.org, Mountain View Baptist Temple. Well, Pastor Hansen, first of all, let me say thank you for faithfully serving in our community. This has been a challenging season for leaders and pastors, and your faithfulness is, um, is appreciated and highly regarded. And I thank you for extending the invitation to KPDQ listeners and beyond to join you in fellowship around God's word and worship. This is a time when we need one another. And for those who feel isolated, they don't have a church home. This is a warm and welcoming invitation to join the family at Mount View Baptist Temple. We are all members of one another. And this is one church in our community to which you have now been cordially invited uh, to attend. Pastor, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Georgine. God bless you. Appreciate what you do. God bless you as well. Again, Senior Pastor Gil Hansen, you're going to be hearing more about Mountain View Baptist uh, Mount View Baptist Temple on KPDQ, so keep your ears open. And if you're looking for a church home, a place to fellowship, or you're looking for a church to join online, again, their website is MVBT, the initials of Mount View Baptist Temple Ministries.org. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just before my conversation with Pastor um, Gil Hansen, I was uh, mentioning Senate Bill 254. It's an emergency mandatory vaccine bit of legislation, and I wanted to pass it along to you as a listener passed it along to me. It's an emergency order that's being pushed through. Lots of people don't know about it. It would discriminate against any child who has not received the full vaccine schedule as the state decides. Now, the bill leaves future vaccines open-ended so they uh, can add more vaccines whenever that uh, arises. It overrides parental authority so you would not have an opt-out option, apparently, to do what's best for the child when it comes to his or her health care if they want to have their medical decisions reviewed by a state board on an ongoing basis when it comes to making vaccine choices that are best for the patients. Well, if a doctor says the child has a medical diagnosis that prevents them from being fully vaccinated, the child's record and doctor's recommendation would be reviewed by the state board. It doesn't automatically exempt them. It would then uh, be reviewed by the state board. Well, the bill doesn't say specifically that the COVID-19 vaccine would be added to the schedule, but it's open-ended enough uh, that it could be added to the future. Um, So I wanted to bring it to your attention again, Senate Bill 254. I'm still in the process of investigating, but the legislative session is underway. Things will move very quickly. And I wanted to make sure that you were um, aware of it. Currently, there is no outbreak of any disease that is uh, on the childhood vaccine schedule. So there is no emergency for passing this bill. But it's often used this uh, mechanism for emergency because it's a shortcut to accomplish something that doesn't require the process of deliberation and debate and persuasion and all of that. So oftentimes you'll find the uh, use of their emergency authority in the legislature for that very purpose. So heads up on that. I wanted to bring it to your attention and thank you to the listener who brought it to mind. Governor Kate Brown on Tuesday announced new coronavirus risk levels for counties across the state. She shifted three additional counties on the coast and in eastern Oregon to the highest concern level. 26 of Oregon's 36 counties are now classified as an extreme risk to COVID-19 spread, the highest possible level. Baker, Clatsop, Coos, and Morrow counties, they were elevated to the highest risk level earlier this week. They joined Portland and all counties in the Willamette Valley. Effective January 15th, they will face bans or closures on indoor dining, gyms and theaters, among other businesses. The highest risk level also puts a cap on religious service attendance and other um, attendance. Well, Oregon has levied $126,749 fine on a Salem gym that's repeatedly refused to shut down in compliance with the coronavirus restrictions. That's the largest fine that the state has issued for coronavirus workplace violations, at least thus far. Oregon Occupational Safety and Health, or OSHA, announced yesterday, or rather Tuesday, that it had issued the fine to Capital Racket Sports for willfully refusing to comply with state health orders at one of the courthouse club's fitness locations in Salem. The courthouse club didn't immediately respond to a request for comment. The gym will have 30 days to decide whether to appeal the fine. Um, It appealed prior sanctions, so this isn't the first for them, but certainly the largest. Now, gyms and counties deemed extreme risks, and as I pointed out, all but 10 fall into that category beginning tomorrow. Um, for the spread of COVID-19, they haven't been allowed to conduct indoor operations since late November under the governor's framework for COVID restrictions. Well, the new regulations came after the governor mandated that gyms shut down entirely for two weeks in early November in an effort to slow the spread of the virus. So there you have it. 
Apparently, Portland Public Schools may allow a limited number of students back into classrooms later this month. That's the latest announcement by a metro area district in the week since um, Governor Brown relaxed the state's role in school reopening decisions. District officials told the school board on Tuesday that 16 of its 58 elementary and K-8 through schools and two of its nine high schools may begin offering in-person instruction to academically struggling students in some grades by the 25th of this month. And that echoes a timeline that Superintendent Guadalupe Guerrero announced back in October. Now, those sessions per state guidelines would last two hours each day. So it wouldn't be a full return. It wouldn't be a full day, uh, but it would be an opportunity for students who are struggling to get the help they need. Well, schools chief Sean Bird said the district's in-person offering will first roll out to students for whom learning from home is going particularly badly in kindergarten, grades one, two, three, and six, and high school freshmen, juniors, and seniors. I don't know about sophomores, but elementary students who require reading support will top the priority list in those grade levels. And the district will also focus on sixth graders and freshmen who haven't performed well in the first semester of the year and on older students who have to recover credit to graduate. Well, during the first quarter of the academic year, more than one in five of the district's high school students either received a failing grade or didn't complete enough coursework to earn a passing grade in the last one, or at least rather, one class. Well, um, the school chief, Bird, didn't say how many schools the district would invite back into the classroom, but he told the school board that the district will expand in its uh, person's offering, in-person offering, in February to students in schools with high levels of poverty and that lag in academic performance. So this is a, a good idea. Meanwhile, President-elect Joe Biden on Thursday is going to unveil his long-awaited coronavirus stimulus proposal designed to jumpstart the nation's economic uh, economy rather, amid the uh, fresh evidence that the recovery is sputtering. Well, the plan would uh, carry a price tag of at least $1.5 trillion dollars and widely expected to include a commitment for $1,400 stimulus checks, an extension of the supplemental unemployment benefits that are poised to expire in March, uh, funding for vaccine distribution and aid for state and local governments. The $1,400 payments would be in addition to the $600 that most Americans received this month or should receive by the end of this week, bringing the total check to $2,000. Biden will introduce the aid package during an evening speech from Wilmington, Delaware. It's going to be tonight, 7 o'clock, I believe, Eastern time. Very unusual for a press event, 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern time on a Thursday. And with all that's going on, this may be a refreshing break from uh, pundits uh, reflecting back on January the 6th. But this will be just six days before he's poised to take office. He's repeatedly said that passing another round of emergency aid is a priority his administration, and he's pledged to hit the ground running on passing that legislation. With a majority in both the House and the Senate, I have no doubt he will successfully do just that. Whether or not it's the right amount, whether or not the deficit will uh, continue to, um, what's the death uh, knell is not the word I'm looking at, but the, you know, the rattle that you hear when, when death is imminent. Anyway, um, the deficit is going to continue to rise and Um, Hopefully this will be managed well. I'm praying for members of Congress. My level of confidence, just based on what I'm seeing and hearing, not so good. But I'm praying for those that I would consider politically an enemy. I'm praying for those with whom I agree. I'm praying for those in positions of authority that I think are reckless and wanton. I'm praying for those 
uh, who serve them because I'm asking God to intervene and do what, uh, you know, the ballot box was insufficient in doing um, and what we've seen and heard since. So I'm all right. And I hope you are as well. Anyway, we're out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Be sure to check out Mount View Baptist Temple at mvbtministries.org if you're looking for a church home this Sunday. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.